Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. Six years later, when I left, we'd had five years of record profits, five years of record Grammy wins, and we were number two in the, in the market. And we pioneered digital distribution and digital marketing. Being overly stressed and anxious is not going to help things. If you would just relax a little bit, things might not only work out just as well, they might even work out a little bit better. We only have one rule at our companies, which is if you lie, you get fired. Nothing else will get you fired summarily, but lying will. I can't make good decisions on bad information, and I don't want to work with liars. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today, we have Strauss Zelnick. So this was a masterclass I did with my mastermind members, and it was so good that I got permission from them to share it with you. So think of it as a bonus episode. So... Strauss Zelnick, for those of you that don't know who he is, he was the chairman and CEO of Columbia Music, the CEO of BMG Entertainment, the president and CEO of 20th Century Fox. He got his MBA from Harvard. He got a law degree from Harvard. The guy is a beast. He's 62 years old. He's shredded. He's got it all. And what we did was we talked about all of the areas of his life and how he's been able to compartmentalize the areas so that he's really, really clear on what he's going to execute and what he isn't going to execute. We talked about everything from what it was like to green light dirty dancing all the way to the movie business and how he took a little unnamed artist named Dave Matthews and brought him out into the world. So you're absolutely going to love this episode. I want to save all the time for this interview with Strauss. So here you go. So for people that don't know who you are, you are the former chairman and CEO of Columbia Music, CEO of BMG Entertainment, president and chief operating officer of 20th Century Fox. You got your MBA from Harvard and your law degree from Harvard. Did I get that right? Yep, you got that right. God, I wish I could say that. That is so freaking <laughs> cool. 
So on the play side, this is a work hard, play hard group. So on the play side, you decided that you were going to get younger every year. And at 62, I believe you are now, you kind of look like you're a 30 year old, a little bit of snow in the beard, but you still look like you're 30. Yeah, I should have shaved this morning, but I'm not sure I look like a 30 year old, but it's nice of you to say so. (laughs) But I feel feel probably younger than a 30 year old. So I'm not sure we can do much about the way we look, although we can avoid and take care of ourselves. But you can definitely do something about the way you feel and the way you move. Yeah, for sure. We're going to get into that. Um, you spend, uh, you are happily married. You spend a lot of time mentoring and giving back. And uh, I believe you just got back from the New Orleans game. Is that right? Yeah, I was. I was at the college football championship in New Orleans. How was it? Was it great? Oh, it was actually a lot of fun. I mean, I like I like watching football. I don't, I don't like watching all sports, but I do like watching football. You know, with this uh, this group that uh, is going to be seeing this, we all just got uh, to meet uh, Tom Brady's trainer at TB12, and we shut down the uh, facility. And uh, he taught us how he trains. You would have you would have absolutely loved that. It was such a great time. Yeah, he's a, you know the 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 effects are obvious. Tom Brady's an amazing athlete. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to start off with uh, a few examples in your business career that I think really can add some value to the group of business people who'll be watching this and sort of maybe provide a lens for how you um, step out of the way to allow success in a very different way than I think most entrepreneurs do. So I want to first talk about the movie business. Years ago, you had someone that came into your office and said, hey, I got a got an idea for a movie that's going to change how women look at their lives, how they dress, and it's going to win an Oscar. And you didn't quite see it that way. You thought it was a little corny, a little bit pedestrian, but you believed in the creative team. And you went ahead and you greenlit it anyway, or a part of that process. And that movie wound up being Dirty Dancing, which it went on to become one of the highest grossing independent films, win an Oscar, etc. Can you walk us through maybe any techniques or approaches that you have that allow you to see success in things, not necessarily through your eyes, but through the eyes of others? Well, it's, the way you po- pose the question, you actually, I almost couldn't have answered better than the way you posed it. <laughs> I think, you know, I don't, I don't really have any creative talent myself, but I seem to have an ability to identify incredibly talented people, creative executives and business executives. And then I, I seem to have an ability to encourage them to work within our enterprise, pursue what they're passionate about, and as a result, deliver great results. So I'm not sure if that's a skill or even something that should be admired, uh, but it's what I do. And, and I'm often asked, how, how do you know? Like, How do you know if a creative person is really talented, especially in, in, in say, the video game business? I don't even play video games. And what I'll say is, look, I'm not the consumer in chief. That's not my job. I'm not the, the taste arbiter. I have to really get to know people and, and what makes them tick. I obviously am interested in what their track record is before. This isn't magical. We're not, you know, trying, I'm not trying to find uh, talent when um, there's no evidence whatsoever that the person had success previously. We are talking about people um, when you're talking about the, the top of the, the top level of, of any enterprise who've had long-standing um, experience typically. So there's the normal, you know, Look at someone's experience, read the resume, and do your homework on who the person is. But then the 
there's a secondary um, practice I, I'd say that I pursue, which is really is nothing more or less than listening empathetically and really trying to understand someone, not what necessarily the words are saying, but the feelings that they have and understanding their true motivation, uh, drive, uh, their values, what they care about, and listening to them talk about the creative projects they're working on. And I've, I've found that generally speaking, if I take the time to listen with great empathy and emotional openness, I usually seem to be able to tell the difference between immensely talented people who are likely to achieve great results from people who perhaps are talented, maybe even have had good results in the past, but aren't necessarily the people that we would want to work with to achieve you know, the most successful entertainment properties made on earth, which is what I've tried to do my whole career, whether I was in television, motion pictures, home entertainment, music, or video games. Do you sort of consider that to be emotional intelligence that everybody's talking about these days? Unquestionably, but I think it drills down to listening. People are really bad at listening. Most people, when they're talking to someone, are thinking about what they are going to say next. Often they interrupt. Uh, often they don't listen at all. And people become impatient. And I do too at times. At my best, though, I'm, I'm reasonably good at sort of stepping back and trying to um, only look at the world through the other person's eyes and open my ears, but also my heart to what they're saying what they're feeling and what they care about. No, it's interesting. I yesterday I interviewed a guy named Chris Voss. Do you know who that is? Maybe not. He's a he's an FBI negotiator, and we no. were talking. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And he was saying exactly what you just said that he trains people now. He was a, an FBI negotiator for twenty years, and he did um, the Chase Manhattan uh, robbery and. Uh, Chase, Chase Bank in Manhattan, there was a robbery with hostages and he did it. And I asked him, what, what is the one skill set that you need? He said, empathic listening. And mm-hmm. it's exactly what you just said. So whether you're the success that you are in business or you're trying to get hostages out of a bank, it is um, empathetic listening. So that's, that's, a twice, that's twice I heard that. So maybe the universe is telling me something. I want to move on to um, another area which is similar, and that is when you were at RCA. A few years after, uh, I guess, the Dirty Dancing thing we just mentioned, you found yourself at RCA. BMG, which was the RCA parent company, but okay. BMG, okay, got it. Um, RCA was a division of BMG at that time. Okay. And it's sort of a similar situation arose. Your team said that they were, you know, super excited about this unreleased artist. And, you know, you listen to this song and you yourself have a musical background and training and you listen to the song and you're like, it has no hook. It has no chorus. It has no bridge. But you decided to give this little guy, Dave Matthews, a shot who wound up revitalizing RCA and ultimately led to more boy bands and girl bands, et cetera. What were the key ingredients that led to making that decision for you to say yes and create that huge domino effect that ultimately wound up happening? Listening. I mean, it was the same story. We, I <clears throat> came to BMG, RCA Records, didn't have a president at that time and had been losing money for a really long time. It was known colloquially in the industry as the Record Cemetery of America. 
And we didn't even have very many new artists and we didn't have a lot of marketing dollars. So we had to decide what to focus on. I just wandered the halls and went into everyone's office and said, among all of our unreleased artists, what are you most excited about? Everyone played me the same record. And by the end of the afternoon, I'd heard 20 people play me the same record. And you're right, I, I didn't I didn't actually connect to it. And, I, and it, you know, it's sort of terrible to say because I'm a big fan of Dave Matthews now and I've gotten to know him over the years and obviously he's an amazing artist. But the truth is I really didn't hear it at the time. But it was, it was good enough for me that the entire enterprise was behind it and was passionate about it. And what I'd said to everyone was, we're going to pursue what we're passionate about. And you, you don't get to choose. You, you establish your strategy. At that time at RCA was, we are only going to get behind music that we think is spectacularly good and about which we're passionate. Then the whole team says, we think this is spectacularly good and we're passionate about it. And then I, as a head of the organization, say, yeah, that's fine, but we're not doing that. Well, then, <laughs> and I haven't outlined this strategy. I haven't empowered the team. And, and, what, and my words were empty. And what I like to say is, you know, um, don't listen to the words. Look at the actions. That's probably what someone is going to do over and over again. Or, or said another way, you know, we all know, we know that boss, the boss who comes into the big meeting of the team and tells a great story. And the story has no bearing in reality. And the boss leaves the room, everyone applauds, boss leaves the room, and everyone looks at each other and like, oh my God. <laughs> I never want to be that guy. You know, I, I, want, to, I want the, the words to match the actions and the actions to be aligned with the team's actions. And maybe if we do that in the, in the context of a smart strategy, we'll deliver great results. That, that's what I would like to do. Are there ever times where the team is super passionate about something and you're like, okay, go with it, and they were wrong? Well, first of all, yes, because we're in the entertainment business. So of course we have flops. And there are also times when a team is super passionate about something and I have to say no. What, so like, what would be an occasion where that would happen? Maybe the financial elements don't make sense. You know, maybe, maybe it's an exciting project and an, an interesting project, but... But the, the underlying analytics just don't pencil out. Or there's a project that people are excited about. But when you really research the nature of the enterprise they're excited about, it, it's hard to believe that that will actually be successful. And I am obligated to make those decisions. So it's not like if it were as simple as, you know, hire talented people and then get out of the, get out of the way, I could take the rest of the day off, right? I, like we, we've hired 5,400 people here at Take Two. And another 2,500 people at ZMC, they're all coming to work today. At least I hope so. I, I think they're really talented people. If all I'm doing is like, great, I think I'm really good at hiring talented people and letting them do what they want. Well, I've just you know, organized myself out of a job. So I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not stepping down from the obligations to have a reasoned point of view. And that means even listening to what people have to say, sometimes I can't back that opportunity or I can't back it in the way that it was presented. And of course that happens a lot. And we have a dialectic that leads us, I hope, to a great result. I love that. I have to look up dialectic though. I have no idea what it means. Interaction. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of take two, lightning struck three times when you came to a video game company called Take Two, where I believe you are at this moment. Take Two, for those people that don't know, created Grand Theft Auto and NBA 2K. And you wound up, I think, taking that company to $3 billion. Is that right? This year will be just about shy of $3 billion in net bookings. 
uh, very close to three billion in net bookings, and our market capitalization is around fourteen billion dollars. Do you ever like pinch yourself and go, "Shit, I'm good." I mean, no. you don't. No. No, no, no. Occasionally, I mean, I, I think best case, and you know, not to be falsely modest, best case scenario, I'll say, you know, I feel, I feel really satisfied that this piece of business worked out. For sure, I feel that way. And it's, I think it's toxic if you can't ever give yourself credit, right? And then all you're doing is just driving yourself mercilessly. But I know I don't have the feeling like the one you just described. I can't even say those words. But I, <laughs> but it, I will, it will I, come out of you. I do hope that I can say, look, on balance, you know, we pulled together as a team. We pursued a particular strategy. We worked hard. We were creative about it. We didn't take no for an answer, and we achieved a great result. And I'll put myself on the list of people that would have had something to do to it, do with it. But generally, remember, you know, the work doesn't get done in the corner office. I don't. What do, you know, I can't take properly take credit for this because I don't do that work. The work is done outside of this office, and I know that. And I think. Again, it's it isn't false modesty; it's truth telling. There's a big difference. Um, CEOs don't do the work. <laughs> Come on, obviously. Um, so, but we hopefully have a hand in setting strategy. Certainly have a hand in selecting teams, and definitely have a hand in motivating people to achieve and driving execution. Um, but I'm not doing the execution myself. Not in a business that's this big. One person business, sure, but this is not that. This is a big. ZMC and Take-Two are big, far-flung enterprises now. So it isn't about how, how good I am, but it is about how good we are collectively, for sure. And I'm allowed to, I'm allowed to feel like I'm part of the team. That's about as far as I'm going to go. Yeah, no, I, I get that. That makes perfect sense when you put it that way. So when you come into a company like Take-Two that's already doing well, I mean, they, when, you, when you got there, I think they were probably doing a billion dollars. Is that right? About seven hundred million net revenue, and they were not doing well. They were losing a lot of money. They were oh. under investigation by three regulatory bodies. Their chairman had been indicted. Their CFO was under investigation, and they were nearly bankrupt. No, it was very much a turnaround. Okay, well, that's then. This question will be even yeah, better. I mean, look, they had Grand Theft Auto. Uh, it was a property of the companies of Rockstar, which is a division of Take Two. By the way, it was it was created by Rockstar, not Take Two, um, just because you were, you mentioned that earlier. So there, there were some wonderful creative properties here, and there were some wonderful creative people here. But really, the only hit was Grand Theft Auto, and um, sports business was losing money. And there were really there were a couple other great titles, Civilization, for example, but precious few. When you walk in there and you see all of that around you, and you've got to turn it around. Is there an overwhelming feeling for you of how am I going to do this? Or does your brain just organize itself in such a way that you can sort of like look at the macro and be able to move the pieces around in your head that don't look right? So it's funny that you put it that way. I seem to have an ability to capture two uh, uh, contrary ideas simultaneously. And so whenever I've been presented with a big challenge, BMG was a turnaround as well, in a way Fox was to take two certainly was. I definitely have the feeling that you just said, which is, oh my God, how, how am I ever going to do this? And it was even worse because in many instances, I had no experience. So I, I joined the record business at BMG with no recorded music experience. And the company had 26 divisions, 24 of which were losing money and was in fifth place out of six record companies. P.S., you know, six years later when I left, we'd had five years of record profits, five years of record Grammy wins. Uh, and we were number two in the in the market. 
uh, and we pioneered digital distribution and digital marketing. So, but I, so I show up with like, how am I ever going to figure this out? This is a very big mess. Other people have tried and failed before me. I'm not as talented as they are, certainly not as experienced. I have no trouble capturing that thought. And equally, I seem also to have no trouble saying, yeah, but I believe if we have a vision for success and it's a sensible vision, pretty relentless and, and we'll get there. So I somehow managed to hold both of those thoughts simultaneously. And then in the execution of the turnaround and the buildup, I tend to look at it the way you just described, which is um, I, I sort of uh, map the enterprise as it is and map the enterprises it needs to be, and then methodically try to move from here to there, obviously with a team that does the work. Is it difficult for you when you come home at the end of the day? We're going to talk about fitness in a second because I know that that's a big, <clears throat> I'm sure, stress release for you. But is it difficult? You know, a lot of the people that are going to be watching this um, fall into the category of, you know, entrepreneurs, influencers on the internet, on things like Instagram, Facebook, et cetera, making, you know, a couple million bucks a year, et cetera. But they're one man shows. They're not, you know, people that have, you know, the amount of employees that you have, et cetera. Is it difficult for you at the end of the day to come home with so many different divisions and ideas and things that are happening? Like when I think about what it must be like to head something as large as you run, how do you not keep your brain from exploding at the end of the day? Well, I'm, I'm pretty organized. And remember, I believe in delegation with information. So I have a pretty good sense of the things that are going on. And then a, a very limited number of important tasks will rise to my level. Those would be the ones that normally I'd focus on. Um, so at any given time, there are probably 10 or 15 key items that I'm focused on in a day and you know, where I can make a difference or should make a difference or need to look in on them. And the rest, you know, there are other people looking after. I don't, I don't, I think to do it any other way, you're micromanaging the business and there are people who do that, but you know, they drive themselves insane. And unless they're just superbly talented, like Steve Jobs, for example, who, who was incredibly talented. I, I wouldn't have wanted his life, but you know he was incredibly talented. Well, I'm not Steve Jobs, um, and I know that about myself. So I have to limit my activities to areas where I can make a difference and areas that are really uh, pressing. And one of the rules that we have in our organization is everyone tells the truth, first of all. And secondly, uh, I don't get surprised. So if something is up that's negative, I know it. I know it worldwide about any of my enterprises right now. Is it because you've trained your people, for lack of a better word, to make sure that they tell you the truth? Absolutely. Well, more than that, we only have one rule at our companies, which is if you lie, you get fired. Nothing wow. Else, nothing else will get you fired summarily, but lying will. Because I, I can't make good decisions on bad information, and I don't want to work with liars. You made a decision in your early 40s. You read this book called Younger Next Year, which taught you that you don't have to decline from middle age. And you took that quite literally. Could you, which is, by the way, that's how I found you, which is, it's fascinating to me. I have to tell you a quick side story before I ask this question. My brother worked for uh, BMG. He worked, in, he worked as an A&R guy. I don't know if he was the years when you were there. His name was Victor Murgatroyd. And he worked um, for BMG uh, in the rock division. And anyway, one day, 
we were sitting there talking and we we're talking about fitness and stuff. And I said, I'm reading this book by a guy named Strauss Zelnick um, about fitness. And he said, I can't be the same guy. And I said, what guy? He said, I think I, I think I worked for, I think he was the guy that ran the company I was in. I was, I showed him your picture. He was like, oh my God, that guy changed. Wow. <laughs> so that's just a, a really funny story. Okay. <laughs> so I hope by that guy changed, he didn't mean my God, that guy got old. <laughs> no, no. Cause I showed him a picture with your shirt off. There you go. Um, I didn't wander around BMG with my shirt off most of the time, but okay. <laughs> so you read, you read this book. You don't have to decline from middle age. And you took that literally. Could you sort of walk me through the fitness approach to creating the transformation that you did and which ultimately led to you writing that book, Becoming Ageless? Well, the transfer, it wasn't precisely a transformation, it was more an evolution because I was never, I was fortunate. I was never fat, for example. I wasn't a smoker. I mean, I didn't have to, I didn't have to make radical changes. But I was someone whose idea of fitness was kind of three moderate, moderate sessions in the gym days, you know, three sessions in the gym per week, um, you know, kind of mailing it in. And that was it. And I didn't do much cardio, a little bit of cardio, mostly weights. And because I was by nature thin, you know, I looked fine. And um, I, I also was in the gym three days a week because that was at the time in my life where I still had little kids and I had many obligations and I didn't have a lot of extra time. So in my early 40s, I read that book. But the other thing that changed is I started ZMC. So I now worked for myself. ZMC wasn't all that busy initially because we didn't own any companies initially, of course. And my kids were getting a bit older. And therefore, I have more time to devote to fitness. And one of the things I like to say is, you know, I, it, it troubles me when we read articles about fitness and health that outline, you know, where the author outlines an array of things to do that are impossible for anyone else. And you know, the basic message of the book is, I'm really awesome. And if you just do these 20,000 incredibly impossible things, you can be as awesome as me. But really, you'll probably never be as awesome as me. And um, I, I just don't subscribe to that view at all. Um, the view that I have is that all of us can improve but we have to choose. And certain times in one's life, we don't have as much bandwidth as other times. And so I, I had the ability to start adding more exercise. And in my early 40s, with a buddy, I started cycling. And I fell in love with cycling. So suddenly, I was adding some cardio, and I definitely started getting fitter. And I like that feeling um, of getting fitter and, and being good at a sport. It was a really social sport. It is. I like that part of it. That led me to begin to pick up some other exercise, different types, yoga, high-intensity interval training, a training with a trainer. And um, it was, it was um, sort of a slow burn. And as time progressed, I added more and more uh, in different kinds of exercise. And I also began to get my diet a bit more under control, although I am not a poster child for eating the healthiest diet you can imagine. Um, most people are not. Um, most people, have, you, know, you know, I don't even like using the word cheat. Um, but most people eat things that they know are probably not all that good for them. I just try not to do all of it all the time in great quantity. What, you're 62 now, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So when I look at you, I am so blown away because I, you know, I, I've got a lot of people that are going to be watching this. Uh, well, I'm not wearing makeup on this show today because I didn't even know I was going to be on video. So, oh, 
give me a little warning, I would have looked better. You know, it'll smooth out some of the lines. I'll put a filter on it. Don't worry about <laughs> it. When I see when I see you on Instagram, and I think the story goes something like you reached out to some some people a little younger than you that are working out early in the morning and you said, Hey, let's do a workout club and let's get together. And, you know, we'll take a picture of ourselves on Instagram and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll leverage accountability, let's say. And I've watched over the course of the last two years that I've been sort of following you, you really are reverse aging. It's crazy at how fit you're becoming now. So like, when you look back on these last, I don't know, three to five years, let's say, that you're sort of like all in with this level of conditioning, what are some key ingredients that you know some of the people listening can take from this? And obviously, everybody needs to get your book, but what are some key ingredients that people can take? Like, look, just you know, do, do, these, two, three, do these two two or three things, and this will radically help you. Well, the first is know what it is you want. Not everyone cares about looking a certain way. For many people, their goals would be just feeling better, you know, not being not having aches and pains. But for other people, it could be, I want to do a certain sport better. Um, so the first thing is, it's not the same prescription for everyone. Uh, and not everyone cares about being ripped. Uh, you know, uh, my wife really, or at least says, she, she insists that she couldn't care less. Um, she's not so impressed in the first place. And even if she were, she doesn't care. Um, just going back to the formation of what became the program, I actually didn't reach out to people and it wasn't intentional. Um, a young friend of mine simply said, when the weather was too cold to cycle outside, do you want to go do a spin class? And my response was, ah, I don't really like indoor cycling. No. He said, well, come on, let's do it. It'll be fun. And it turns out it was fun. And the next week we met again, and then we met again. And then he said, I think I'll bring a friend. And next thing you know, there were four or five of us. And those, we went to the cycling class uh, for I don't know, months. And then at one point, I said, hey, I, I hear that there's um, like this fun class at Equinox, we should try. Um, it was called Body Blast. So we went to that class um, that same week. So we now had two things to go to. And it just it just knocked us all out. It was so hard. And we really, um, it was not, I wouldn't say we enjoyed it. It was just so hard. Our trainer's name was Flex Cabral. And um, the first his time- name was, Flex, His name was Flex? Flex, that's his, what's his name. <laughs> okay. So, the, so we go to Flex's class. He's a former Marine drill sergeant. You have the picture. He's super fit. And uh, the class was only a half an hour. At the end of half an hour, we were all dead. We barely got through a half an hour. So we said, let's go the next week. We go the next week. And at the half an hour mark, we're all dead. And, I, and we keep going. And class hasn't ended. And it ends at 45 minutes. And I said to him after, I thought this was a half an hour class. He said, yeah, it was the first week. Now it's 45. <laughs> and we used to go, the five or six of us would go every week to this class. And we never saw the same people there twice because everyone else, it was too much. No one else came. And it was too much for us too. We just kept coming. Um, then we added hot, hot yoga, of all things. And then we added uh, uh, weight training at another gym, just us. And then more people came and more people came. And now the program meets somewhere between three and four days a week here in New York at different gyms each day, doing different things. And the total team is about 80 people. It was all organic. It wasn't intentional. And... Um, and the Instagram you know, following is simply an opportunity, as you said, to support each other's success and hopefully motivate other people. Um, so the first step is you know, know what you want. Uh, the second step is start slowly. Be gentle with yourself. Don't expect to get everything overnight. When you read a, a fitness article that says, get you know, washboard abs in three weeks, 
don't bother reading it. You're not going to have washboard abs in three weeks unless you have them today. And if it says, you know, have your beach body between now and Memorial Day, the answer is, you know, if you're 60 pounds overweight, you're not going to. But you could start and you'll be in better health and better shape and maybe you'll lose five pounds or seven pounds. And if you treat this as a daily practice and you're gentle with yourself, over time, you know, you'll have a beach body. It may take a while. And again, many people don't care about that. They simply couldn't care less. They just want to feel a little bit better. Then other people, the truth is, yes, I, I wanted to be an elite athlete and I want to train with the elite athletes. And, you know, maybe, you know, I'm not as elite as I'd like to be, but I'm certainly closer than I used to be. And I certainly do train with elite athletes and professional athletes. And I can hold my own in most things, not everything. And when I can't, I give myself a break. I'm okay with it. You know, I'm resilient. I show up and do it the next day. Two things come to mind. <clears throat> the first is uh, you train, you have two boys. Is that right? Two sons and a daughter. Two sons and a daughter. Okay. So I, I don't know if both of the boys are with you, but I often see... Um, he trains with me a lot. Okay. I see one of them. It looks like your twin. and, and yeah, he, he looks like my um, better looking, blonder, <laughs> blue eyed fitter twin. Yes. Well, but here's the, here's the thing. Like looks pretty great. He looks great, but I have to tell you, I know you're not going to believe me and you're going to, you're going to think that I'm just saying this for the interview, but you look pretty damn close to what he looks like. (laughs) I mean, it's, I'm looking, I'm like, damn, he looks amazing. Two questions on fitness. One is I noticed that you don't do you talk we talked about earlier, like, you know, Tony Robbins calls it a comfort workout. You sort of referred to it as a, you know, you know, phoning it in workout. And we all know what that means. You just show up, get on the bicycle, read the paper. Like I, I know, I know what you're talking about. But the kind of workout that you're doing now seems to lean more t- towards mobility training and um, what's the word? Functional type training. Have you noticed that your activities of daily living, like walking up the steps, et cetera, have radically improved since you've changed to that kind of training? And talk to me a little bit about injuries. So, I I mean, I just didn't have any trouble walking up steps before. So, um, again, I'm not going to present a false transformation. I was a reasonably fit guy. And because I wasn't overweight and I didn't smoke, I didn't have that many things that were going wrong that I had to turn around. Um, I do train for functional fitness because I like to and because I ski and I cycle and uh, those are sports that benefit from better balance. Also, as we get older, balance is one of the things that goes. Um, but balance won't go if you maintain muscle mass and if you keep, you know, you keep your body strong and you're moving around. Balance does not have to go any more than muscles have to you know, uh, atrophy. Um, that's fallacy. The, the, you know, the studies that show you know, men at, after the age of 25 lose muscle mass every year, yes, or men who don't train. Or you know, men will lose you know, um, bone density every year after the age of 40. And the answer is yes, men who don't train. Uh, but if you do weight-bearing exercise, you will maintain your muscle mass unless you have an illness. You'll maintain your bone density unless you have an illness. And you therefore should maintain your balance. And I have better balance than I had when I was 25. Um, I have bone density of a 19-year-old, uh, and I've, as you can see from the pictures, a really good muscle mass and um, a lot of lean muscle. That, and I'm not an outlier. I'm not a natural athlete. I, I'm not a genetic freak. I just just do the work. So what I've what I've noticed with all the training I do is that I can 
I can dive into something really challenging and basically hold my own. Um, and to do that, you have to do the work. Yesterday, I was, uh, I was actually in San Francisco. I was tired because I'd flown in that morning. It was late in the afternoon. Um, and, but I planned to work out with a friend. And by planning with a friend, you have to show up. And I write down the workout on a piece of paper, by the way, not in the device. Why? Because I don't want a device in the gym with me. Because if you look at your device to prompt you for an exercise, you're going to end up looking at your text messages. Um, I don't want to do that. So I'd written down a workout. And the end of the workout was a finisher. But with the workout, was a good deal of weightlifting. And even when I'm tired, you can always lift weights, I find. You know, low cadence weightlifting is not that hard for me. But there was a finisher that was one minute uh, row in the erg, uh, one minute plank, 15 push-ups, four times. So, um, you know, that's about 10, 12 minutes of nonstop exercise and sprinting uh, and planking. And it was pretty brutal. I mean, it, it was pretty brutal. And... That kind of exercise, in addition to weight training, will help your fitness level, agility, balance, resilience, um, more than low cadence weights alone, for example. Where do you get your workouts from? Do you make them up yourself? Now I do, but I, I have three trainers, not four trainers. So I, I pay attention to what they do, and I write down some of the things that they suggest. And I read um, bodybuilding.com, T-Nation, uh, and muscleandfitness.com. All three are good resources for workouts. At the end of the day, most workouts really involve picking up and putting down heavy things. <laughs> it really, you know, really, really doesn't matter. But by knowing a lot of different things, you can create variety and creating variety, you'll address different muscle groups and keep yourself from getting bored. Do you have any injuries at all? No, I'm really fortunate. I think that's an example. You know, that's probably a reflection of the fact that I wasn't a high school athlete. I didn't play contact sports in high school. And my friends who are my age who are, have a lot of aches and pains typically were people who played contact sports in high school or college. And I was a student I, and, I, and a creative guy. That really wasn't what I did. I became an athletic in my early 20s and I didn't do contact sports. So I, I'm not nothing against contact sports. I actually really love watching boxing and football. But as it happens, because I didn't participate in those, I'm fortunate I don't have any injuries. All right. As we, uh, as we slowly wrap up, I want to ask you two areas of questions. The first area is you mentioned something to me when I did a podcast interview with you last year that really, really stuck out in my mind. And I've been adopting it myself. And I was wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on it. And that is that you've said that you can't, think, you can't be all things to all people and that you've never run into anyone that you know has 10 priorities and is effective across all of those priorities. Can you sort of maybe touch on you know, the four priorities that you have in your life and how you approach things that come in that are outside of those four priorities for you? So I thank you for uh, researching that. Yes, I, a buddy of mine came up with this and said, you can do three things. You have three priorities anytime. I stretched it to four. My four are my family and my friends work, fitness, and mentoring and charitable obligations. But think about what comes off that list. You know, I really love movies and all other things equal. I'd love to watch some of the great television shows that are on now, but that's just not on my list of priorities. So I have to, if I want to watch a movie or television show, a tiny little slice of time because it can't, it's not a primary priority. So you have to, again, you have to choose and the way you choose is knowing what it is that you want. And those four things really reflect what I want more than some of the things that that aren't on the list, but you're entitled to come up with your own list. 
where, where you'll find people who are not effective and are frustrated and stressed are people who think they should be able to do 10 or 12 things at a time. And, and of course they can't. And so they end up, you know, constantly playing catch up or disappointing people or disappointing themselves. All right. Last question I want to ask you, and it's a standard journalist question, but I am, but I am interested in the answer. What advice would you have for your 30-year-old self? For my 30-year-old self, remember, I'm different than you. <laughs> so everyone has to ask a different question. Mm-hmm. Or, and, and everyone would give different advice. To, yep. to myself. In my case, probably the advice would have been being overly stressed and anxious is not going to help things. If you would just relax a little bit, things might not only work out just as well, they might even work out a little bit better. Because my 30-year-old self was super intense and wound up and um, at times um, rigid, maybe not as good a listener as I think I am now. I was so ambitious, but also so self-critical that I wasn't really operating at the highest level. And when when I did a bunch of work on myself and got healthier in that way, began to let go of my um, my commitment to be stressed and anxious as much. I still have some of it, but very, very little of it. You know, the opposite of what I thought would happen, happened. It wasn't that my performance went down because I was less, you know, anxious. In fact, my performance at everything improved. I, I confused sort of being stress-free with being lazy. And that's not the case at all. I'm not a lazy person. Um, but when I really reduced my stress level, naturally I became more fluid, more open, you know, more interesting, more fun, developed a better sense of humor, and my performance increased. But I think each of us is different. You know, for other, this wouldn't apply to most other people, I think. Um, you know, we, we look back at our 30-year-old self, if we're not even 30 yet, listening to this, look back at a younger self, I think it'd be different advice at all times. I mean, my, my middle kid, Lucas, the one, the jacked one in the pictures. Yep. You said uh, he's 24. You said, you know, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? You'd probably advise me, I don't know. Keep doing what you're doing, dude. It's going well. That would probably be <laughs> doing great. I think he thinks it's going pretty well. <laughs> well, we're going to have to ask him in, uh, in 30 or 40 years. Well, listen, I just, I want to personally say thank you. You have been so gracious in giving me your time Um twice now. And if there's anything I can ever do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. And thank you for for being more of an inspiration than I think you probably know you are for guys like me. You know, with with social media, there's people watching that you don't know are watching. And I'm one of those guys. And you know, I'm 53 and I've got uh, I've got a 21-year-old and I've got a five-year-old. It's you know first wife, second wife situation. And and I look and I say, you know, this guy, he's done so much and he's so kind and he's so gracious that, you know, I, I, I can do it too. So I just, I just want to thank you for putting out all of the, uh, the goodness that you're putting out into the world. Wow. Thanks. It's nice of you to say that. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. You got it. Thanks, Strauss. Have a great day. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. 
So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.